Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Father, I pray that, Lord, as we begin this new section, Lord, that you would awaken our hearts and our minds to um, the truths that are behind these things and the realities spiritually for us. Lord, we want to grow. We want to know Jesus better because we've been here. And Lord, right now, I just pray that anything that would distract us from fully being here, from fully hearing what you want to say, Lord, that all those distractions would go by the wayside and you'd fill us up, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I know that most of you, or a lot of you guys, um, have been tracking with us through our study um, in Exodus, and I'm not going to do a, a, you know, a huge review, but I'll just say this to kind of um, set a backdrop a little bit before we launch into this new section. That is this. We left Moses last week on Mount Sinai, where he basically had gone up into the very presence of God. Do you guys remember that part? Remember the children of Israel all camped around Mount Sinai? Moses had been up on the mountain. He came down with the book of the covenant. God has called him back up to the mountain. He will be on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. When he comes down the mountain, he will have the very stone tablets, like the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments written on stone by the finger of God. But he'll also bring with him a pattern or a um, blueprint, for lack of a better word, for what is known as the tabernacle. And that's the section we're about to dive into right now. From chapter 25 all the way to chapter 31 is dealing all with this thing called the tabernacle and all of the things related to the tabernacle. And it's not the only place that we will be uh, looking at that. There's going to be a break, and then he's going to go right back to it again when they start building the tabernacle. The tabernacle gets a lot of ink in the Bible. Now, how many of you guys, when I say the tabernacle, you just like snap to, you're like, ah, oh, yes, the tabernacle, I know it well. And like you're very familiar with that. How many of you guys honestly are like, eh, maybe less familiar than that. I think I've heard about it. How many of you guys are like, I have no clue what the heck you're talking about. Yes, awesome. So we have a good mixture. It's an exciting uh, chunk that we're going to get into, and hopefully we can cover um, all of this stuff. What I'd like to do before we get into all the nooks and crannies and all of the details and all the stuff about the tabernacle, I just want to kind of answer some quick questions, maybe like a little introduction as to what the tabernacle even is. Is that okay? So let's just, let's just start there. Look at verse 8 with me. It's actually a good spot to start. We'll back up in a few minutes and get verses 1 through 7. But let's just start with doing a little introduction about the tabernacle. So look at verse 8. The question I want to ask, first of all, is what is the tabernacle? What in the world is this thing? Well, there's a couple of words that are there in verse 8 and verse 9 that give us a good base to just define what this thing is. So look at verse 8. It says, let them make me a sanctuary. First word you to, to take note of there is the word sanctuary. The word sanctuary literally just means a sacred place, a holy place, a place that's set apart that's different. And then specifically, look at verse 9. He says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. So the second word you want to take note of there, if you're taking notes or maybe circling things, is the word tabernacle. 
The word tabernacle in the Hebrew literally just means a dwelling place. And it can, it can refer specifically to a tent. In fact, there's another name for the tabernacle other than, other than tabernacle, other than sanctuary, that's referred to sometimes, and that is called the tent of meeting. Everybody heard that term before. That can get a little confusing because while the tabernacle is being built, Moses will set up a different tent called the tent of meeting where he goes and spends time with the Lord one-on-one. But the tent of meeting is also uh, something that refers to the tabernacle itself. So let me just give you this kind of uh, hack job definition by Jason Beal on the tabernacle, and then I want to show you a picture to kind of visualize it. So basically the tabernacle was an elaborate tent that traveled with Israel through their desert wanderings. It was set up in the center of their camp, and it served as the central place of worship for the children of Israel while they were traveling through Israel or through the desert. Does that make sense so far? It also, guys, listen, and this is the, what's so significant and, and amazing about the tabernacle is that something of the very presence of God was there. Now, we know that the whole world cannot contain the presence of God. Like, God holds the, the, the universe in the span of his hand. So we know that, it, you know, no building, no, nothing can contain God. But something of his Shekinah glory is there. And so that would be right in the middle of their camp. So before I get in further into that, let's take a look at what it might look like, and I'll give you some details this is me being technical, so I'm old. Be patient. But here we go. Check it out. There's a lot of artist renditions about the tabernacle. I just chose this one because I thought it was pretty good. A um, couple things just to point out. First of all, this right here would be the tabernacle proper. That, when we say the tabernacle, that's what kind of what you're, um, you're talking about. It was basically 45 feet long by 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. And it had two chambers, okay? So you can kind of see they divided it right there. The first chamber, for lack of a better word, was called the holy place. And that's where the priests would go in and the, like the, you know, whoever got chosen to be the priest at that particular time, they could go into the holy place. And we'll talk more about that as we get going. This is more of just a, a flyby and then we'll fill in the blanks later. So beyond that division, which was a huge, thick, heavy veil, was the second chamber, which was 15 by 15 by 15, and that was called what? Anybody know what the name of that one was? The Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. So, so that's the tabernacle. It was surrounded by um, kind of like a fence, but the fence was like made out of like a linen material. Let me get the dimensions for that. I don't want to mess that up. Um, that was 175 feet by 87 feet. And if you notice right here, there was one entrance that's the one thing I don't like about this picture is it looks like it's closed. It was always open, and that one entrance was facing east. So we'll talk more about that as well. So that's the tabernacle. That's the, the courtyard that would be surrounding the tabernacle. And then there was various articles of furniture, for lack of a better word, that were in and around the tabernacle. So let's look at those. I got another little amazing, uh, this is another layout, so... So there'd be the altar of incense, or excuse me, altar of sacrifice, sometimes called the brazen altar. We'll talk about that. The brazen basin, which was for washing. And then this is the holy place that we talked about. And so once you came into the holy place, there'd be this golden lampstand. There'd be what's called the table of showbread. We're going to talk about all these things and their significance. This would be where the altar of incense was. And then this right here would be the veil. 
And this would be the Holy of Holies. And right there would be the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. So I've got a couple more pictures here that are pretty cool. Again, these are artist renditions, so, you know, take it or leave it. But they're pretty accurate. So the first thing that we saw, if we went back one of the pictures, you'd see that um, altar or the brazen altar. And this is where you come into the courtyard and you'd bring your offering and the priest would slaughter it. And that's where it would go, something like that. And then there would be this thing called the brazen um, basin or laver. And it was just basically a big bronze pool of water that the priest would use to wash. And again, we're going to talk about all these things. I'm sorry if I just lasered somebody in the eyes just now, whipping this thing around. Um, And then as you went into the holy place, um, there was this golden lampstand. This was the only source of light in in the tabernacle. And it would have these um, lamps on top of there that, you know, wicks that had to be trimmed and special oil that was used. That's one of the priest's jobs. Then there, across from that would be uh, the table of showbread, and there'd be 12 loaves of bread, each signifying, or ta- speaking of one of the tribes of Israel. If you're not catching all this, don't sweat it. We're going to go through all this stuff. And then right before the curtain, there was this thing called the altar of incense, and this was where incense would f- just constantly be going up into the air, and it was a, it was a picture of prayer, of intercession up to God. Um, how many of you guys have ever been to Israel and gone to the model of the tabernacle? So this one year, or for my first trip to Israel, we go to this model for the tabernacle. And, oh, let me just talk about this real quick. There's the um, Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. I have a better picture of that in a second. So we go to this, this model of the, the tabernacle, like life-size to the dimensions it's, it's super impressive. Out in the middle of the desert, you know, we pull up in our tour bus and we see this thing. We're like, oh my gosh, it's like something out of the Bible. Clearly not real gold and linen and all that stuff, but you at least can see what it may have looked like. And you got to remember, it's like 100 degrees outside. And you pull open like the goat skin covering and go inside and there's incense burning and there's 60 people jammed in there wanting to take a look and all of a sudden there's no oxygen in the room and all I remember about that trip is almost passing out and just looking for the exit so there you go there's my little story but that's kind of what it looked like pretty cool right so you got a visual of what the tabernacle is now let's answer let's kind of go to something that that's more important in the introduction and it is not what it is but why it is what was the purpose of the tabernacle look at verse 8 Back to the word. God says to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary. Now this is the operative phrase. Don't miss this. That I may dwell in their midst. Did you catch that? The purpose of the tabernacle from the lips of the Lord was so I can dwell in their midst. The word dwell means what you think it means. It means to live, settle down with, be with. But I like that phrase, in their midst. The word midst means in the middle, right in the middle. And, and so this speaks to the purpose of the tabernacle. God wanted to be right smack dab in the middle of the lives of his people. Amen? That was his heart, to, to, that they would make him the center of their lives. That is, you, if you were in a helicopter and you went up and you looked down on their camp, which was very, it will be eventually very organized, and what would you see right in the middle of their camp? The presence of God. But even more than that, maybe just more on like a, I don't want to say a devotional line of thinking, but, but just an amazing line of thinking. To me, what this speaks of, guys, 
is God's desire to dwell and be with and listen, have relationship with his people. Amen? He wanted to be with his people. It's almost like he's like, everybody's camping. I want to go camping. Make me a tent. I mean, that's a very childish way maybe of thinking about it. But he said, hey, while you're camping out with you, I'm going to come. How condescending is that? That the God that manifested himself on Mount Sion, or excuse me, Mount Sinai, with thunders and lightnings in his presence that's unapproachable, he said, you'll die if you even come close to me, says, I want to come right down and be right in the middle of you guys. So I want you to make me a special tent where that can happen. Now, We've already noted that even though he wanted to be right in their midst, what's the problem? They still can't be right up close to him. There's a curtain, there's a veil keeping everyone out because he's holy. And this is just another reminder that we are not. And something has to be done about our sins so that we can have that unrestricted fellowship. Are you guys tracking with me so far? But just for now on a more broad stroke application, this speaks of God's desire, God's heart, not to be a far-off religious thing, but to dwell at the very core in the very midst of his people. Guys, listen, that has always, since day one, been the heart of God. And listen, from Genesis to Revelation, that's what this book is about. Did you know that the Bible is, is basically the redemptive story of God? of how he's redeeming mankind back to himself, how that there was once fellowship with God, but it was lost, and the whole program to get us back into fellowship with God, it is his desire to have relationship with his creation. Amen? Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says that, that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and when they had sinned and rebelled and eaten of the forbidden fruit, it says, I think somewhere around verse 8, where it says that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the idea was he was looking for Adam, like, where are you at, Adam? Why? Because that's what they would do. They would walk together in the cool of the day. There was intimacy and fellowship and perfect union, but what happened? Sin entered in and broke that communion, but it's always been God's heart to get that back. In fact, listen to this from Revelation chapter 21, when it's all said and done. From Genesis to Revelation, look at this, verse one. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. That's gotta be a misprint. I'm just kidding. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of, the heaven from, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Listen to verse 3. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and there'll be no more mourning and no more crying, no pain anymore, and the former things have passed away. Can I hear somebody say amen to that? That's where this is headed. This is God's heart all along, that we would just have fellowship and relationship with him. Can I just say something that we know so well, and it's, so, it's become so cliche in Christianese that we sometimes, I think, neglect to say it, God's not interested in religion. God wants a relationship with us, with his people. Amen? 
You can, religion up the wazoo out there. But what God is after is intimacy and relationship. Do you have that with God? Do you have him dwelling in your heart? We'll talk more about that. Well, so that's kind of the why, and it's, it's a big why. It's a big answer. God's heart was, I want to be in the midst of my people. I want you to make me the middle of your life. And so that's, the, for now, the, the purpose of the tabernacle. But this is the thing, and it will be done with the introduction, truly, and jump into the text a little bit deeper. But I want you to note something, and if you miss this, listen, if you miss what I'm about to say, this is going to be the most boring section in the world to you. You're going to be reading about various kinds of goat skin and linen and silver hooks and boards, and you're going to be like, speaking of boards, I'm bored to death. If you miss what I'm about to say, this will be boring to you. This will not make sense. This is what we need to grab a hold of. Look, and I'll, I'll kind of introduce it with this. Look at verse uh, 9. God says to Moses, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now that sentiment is repeated over and over again as you go through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, where God says, make sure, Moses, you make this tabernacle exactly the way I've showed you. Don't get creative. Like, don't go off, don't have creative license or whatever. I want you to just do what I say. Why? Well, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, gives us a clue where it says this. Speaking of, uh, I'll just pick it up in verse 4. Hebrews 8, 4. Now, if there were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since these are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Listen, they, that means like the priest, the tabernacle, all that stuff, serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that I have shown you. And so the point I want to make is this. The reason it was so important for God or for Moses to make it exactly like God said was because God is painting a picture. The tabernacle is a copy or a shadow or a foreshadow or a type of a heavenly reality, the heavenly temple and the way that it's laid out. Does that make sense? Kind of. That makes sense. See, by the way, little pause button. If you don't understand the Old Testament, you will have no clue when you get to the book of Hebrews. That is why it is so important to have Old Testament and New Testament down pat. Amen? And listen, he says, just like Moses was told, hey, make it exactly like I tell you. Why? Because God says it's a shadow and a copy of a heavenly reality. And this is what I want us to grab a hold of tonight so that we can move forward a little quicker. And it's this, is that the tabernacle serves as one of, if not the greatest types of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And put it this way. The tabernacle is one great, big object lesson showing us Jesus and his work for us on the cross. Every nook and cranny, every board, every little thing that you can talk about in the tabernacle in some way points us to Jesus Christ. And then all of the furniture in the tabernacle points us to Jesus Christ. The priesthood established around the tabernacle points us to Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Amen? So we have to kind of get that. Now, having said that, 
I personally think it would take so much time and almost be impossible to just extract every little nuance and nook and cranny, so I'm not planning on doing that necessarily as we go through, but I at least, as we go through the, the, the furniture and the tabernacle and the materials, I at least want to touch on some big things and important things so that we get at least the big picture as we go through. Amen? You got it? So the tabernacle was a big tent, special tent, what, for what purpose? So that God would be able to dwell in the midst of his people, and the whole thing speaks of Jesus Christ. Got that down so far? All right, so let's do this now. Let's go back and let's look at verse 1 because now we're just going to jump in with both feet. And my plan is to not do the whole chapter since I took such a long time. I knew that would happen, doing an introduction. So I'm planning to hopefully get through chapter uh, 25, verse 22. So we'll see how that goes. But let's start. I, I heard that laugh. Let's, let's start chapter 25, verse 1. I almost feel like I'm in a school setting right now. Like, any questions? Don't ask. Let's just keep going. Chapter 25, verse 1. It says uh, that Moses, he said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. Now, the word contribution there, you might have offering. Anybody use the Bible say offering? Yeah, that's what it was. We'll talk about it in a second. Every man whose heart moves him shall receive the offering or the contribution from me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood. Verse 6, oil for the lamps, spices, anointing oil uh, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for the setting of the ephod. Again, we'll talk about what those things are as we get going uh, for the breastplate. So the first thing we want to note here, right off the get-go, as God is introducing the whole idea of the tabernacle to Moses, he first says, um, I want to invite the people to be a part of this special project we're doing, and so I'm going to have you take a special offering. Here's what I love. Just, just bear with me on this. I love the fact that God's like, we're about to do something special for the glory of God. It's going to cost money. I love how pragmatic that is. I'm probably, the, I, I don't know why this tickles me so much, but I'm like, this is so like, just so down to earth. God's like, we're going to do something awesome for the glory of God. It's going to cost some money to do. I guess the reason I, I find that kind of cool is because you find out as you serve the Lord and you're in church a long time or pastoring or any kind of service to the Lord, guess what happens? It takes money to make stuff operate sometimes. Whether you're talking about a building project for a church, whether you're talking about an outreach for a church, whether you're talking about missions work, all of these things, guess what? It all, in a very human level, takes money. It's expensive. It takes sometimes a sacrifice. And what I love here is God is saying, I want, to, I want the people to participate in this. A couple things to note about this. Number one, and there's some great lessons about giving here. Number one is that this project this, this offering that they were to take, it was to be a voluntary offering. Did you guys catch that? It's called a contribution. He uses the word offering. In the Hebrew, the word literally means a present. It's a gift. The point is, this is a non-obligatory offering as opposed to what? What would be an obligatory thing of giving that they would have to do in the law? Who knows? The tithe. Did somebody say the tithe or did I put words in your mouth? It's the tithe. We haven't gotten to that point yet, but God is going to demand in the law that the, the first tenth 
And actually, when you put it all together, it's almost like 30% when you put all the tithes together. But there's, he says, the first tithe, the first tenth of all your income, all your crops, that's the Lord's. That belongs to me. That's not even yours to keep. That's mine, God would say, in the law. But this is not that. He says, this has nothing to do with that. You're still going to be obligated to do that. But what I want to know is, do you want to participate above and beyond that tithe in an offering, a free will offering to give to this project? And I love that because check it out. It says, as each man's heart, did you guys catch that? Moved him. He's not putting pressure on anybody. But I believe he was touching the heart of people. And he's like, man, if, if it's on your heart to give, go for it. Now, what I love about that, too, is some people, when they gave, they're like, I got all this extra gold. Can you use that? And other people are like, I don't got gold, but I got some wood. And they give him the wood. But in God's economy, the wood was just as valuable as the gold. Does that make sense? Because he was looking at the heart, and he's like, man, what a blessing. You guys can give to this thing above and beyond your tithe. Go for it. So number one, it was a voluntary, as your heart moves you kind of thing, as opposed to the tithe, according to their ability. But this is the real point I want to make. Look at this. As he says there a couple of times, look at verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they take, listen, for me an offering. And then it says again, take my offering or my contribution guys this is such a key when it comes to giving god says take my contribution take my offering meaning when they gave it had very little to do with the building project and had everything to do with them giving to the lord as an act of worship does that make sense it wasn't like some oh i gotta participate in this building it was like no I'm not really giving it to you guys. I mean, yeah, we're going to use it for that, but really it's just an act of worship, an expression of my heart. It's, I'm really just giving it to the Lord. Amen? Here's why that's so important. If you miss that, you'll never get giving. And by the way, we're called to give as Christians, and, and I'm not going to open the huge can of worms that this topic can be. I'll give you my take on things. I believe personally that in the New Testament, we're not under the law at all, not, not even a little. We're not under the law to give the tithe. I do believe the tithe is a principle that preceded the law, and I think it's a great practice, and I personally do it, and we could talk about that all day long. I personally love that picture of giving the tithe first, and then when you want to give to a building project or a missionary, man, give a free will offering above and beyond that. I think that's a great model for giving, and we, I don't intend to talk about that over and over. But the point I really want to drive home is, God was looking for people that would worship with their money, that would say, Lord, I just want to give it to you. Can I encourage you? I've said this before. I'll say it again. When you give, first of all, I pray that you do give. And when you do, I, I pray and hope that it is an act of worship to God. Be careful not to just chuck it into the basket when it goes by. When you know that basket's coming, pause and pray and say, Lord, thank you for how much you've blessed me. Thank you for the groceries this week. Thank you for my paycheck. Thank you for my car. Thank you for all the abundance. And God, please accept this gift that I'm giving, whether it's a tithe or an offering or whatever it is, as an act of worship to you. Amen? I know a lot of people that are like, well, I don't know if I want to give that money because I'm not sure what the leadership's doing with it. I get that. And we should be accountable. 
But you know what? At the end of the day, you've got to trust your leadership and give it to the Lord and let go of it. And then the leadership will be held accountable for how they spend it. Does that make sense? But that has nothing to do with between you and God. So anyway, some tips on giving. Now, by the way, um, a little tidbit here. You might ask, well, how did that go for him? How did that offering go? Well, we'll see when we get to chapter 36, but I'll just spoil it now. People gave so much that they literally had to go and say, stop giving. We have too much stuff. How refreshing would it be to turn on TBN and have a pastor say, stop giving to our ministry. We got way too much money coming in. I mean, there's been so much abuse and, and wrong teaching about giving. I mean, see, that's, see, when you get it as an act of worship, I, I believe that the Lord provides, and, and this is just such a beautiful thing. He presents the need. He invites the people to participate, and because they participated, their heart was in it. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. I don't really have a heart for missions. Start giving money to missions, and you'll have a heart for missions. Does that make sense? And they gave so much. They're like, stop, please. We got way too much stuff. Well, let's move on. We got to move on. Because we come to just the, this miraculous, wonderful section in verses 10 through 16, dealing with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. So the Ark of the Covenant, again, was that chest that, um, well, let's read it and then I'll go back. So verse 10. And then he said, they shall make me an Ark of Acacia wood, Two cubits, and a cubit was about 18 inches, somewhere roughly in there. So two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. So basically four foot by a little over two feet. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside, and you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it, and you shall cast four rings of gold for it on, and put them on its four feet two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it and you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them the poles shall remain in the ark and they shall not be taken from it now look at verse 16 this is significant and you shall put into the ark the testimony that i shall give you and that's referring to uh, the ten commandments so the Ark of the Covenant. How many of you guys have ever heard of the Ark of the Covenant? So yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, and I think I, I've got a couple little things I'll show you here in a second. But the Ark of the Covenant, the word Ark, by the way, and I didn't know this for the longest time, it just means chest. It's like, a, it's like a, think of a treasure chest. It was basically this box, about four feet by two feet by two feet, roughly, that was made out of acacia wood. Acacia wood is a very, very dense, hard, kind of bug-resistant wood from that region. So it was made out of wood, but then it was covered, listen, in pure gold on the inside and on the outside. It had four feet, and then on each side there was two rings, and then they had these, like, these shafts of acacia wood that, went, that were also covered in pure gold that slipped through those rings, and that's what the priests would use to carry it. Does that make sense so far? I got a, like an, another artist rendition of what it might look like. I don't know if you can see that too well or not. but So that may be what it looked like. Nobody really knows, obviously. And then um, there was, uh, we'll talk about the top of it here in a second. Um, but just hold on. So let's talk about the ark for a second. Um, 
the purpose of the ark was basically to hold what? The Ten Commandments. It enshrined the Ten Commandments. And, and I'll talk about that some more in a second. But I want to show you guys... Um, again, the importance of, of how this all points to Christ. The ark itself, guys, is a picture of Jesus Christ. The ark itself is a picture of Jesus Christ. How so? It's made out of acacia wood. Wood here in the Bible t- typically is speaking of his humanity. Wood is, you know, it's a, from a tree that grows up from the ground and the dirt. It's a, it's a very common, you know, thing from the earth. The wood speaks of the humanity of Jesus Christ, whereas gold in the Bible is typical of what? Deity. What a picture of Jesus Christ. He was all man, in a sense, covered with gold. Or, or You know what I'm saying? He was 100% man. He was the wood, if you would, but he was also the gold. He was wood and gold. He was humanity and he was deity. This is one of the mysteries of the doctrines of the Bible called the incarnation, where God himself became a man. And it speaks of that the fact that he's 100% man and he's 100% God. Amen? So even in the ark, you see a picture of Jesus Christ himself. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, he's holding, or the ark is holding the Ten Commandments. I was thinking about that. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to what? Fulfill the law. Jesus is actually the only one, if you would, that could contain the Ten Commandments. He's the only one that actually lived them out, that actually never broke them. He's the one that perfectly fulfilled them to the end. Well, let's keep going, and, and this picture will begin to develop. It says in verse 17, he says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two cherubim, that is angels, of gold, of hammered work, you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. One piece of the, excuse me, uh, of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim uh, on its two ends. In other words, it wasn't like separate pieces, you know, welded together. This is one solid piece of gold. Verse 20. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces, uh, one to another, toward the mercy seat, shall their faces of the cherubim be. Verse 21. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and the ark shall, uh, excuse me, and you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Um, And then verse 22. Look it. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, and from above the two cherubim, that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give in commandment for the people of Israel. We'll come back to that, super important. But as far as description, so here you have this lid with the dimensions that would fit on top of the ark, the chest, solid gold with these two angels. Actually, I think that's actually, who knows? I mean, whether it looked like that or not, I don't know. But Guys, that wasn't like two pieces like put together. It was to be one piece of hammered gold. This, just the craftsmanship and the skill of this un, it's off the charts. Unbelievably valuable, you know, monetarily too when you think about it. But these angels would be stretching out over. And so that's kind of what put together the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat would look like. I have a picture of what it might have looked like when two priests maybe uh, were carrying it. Something like that. Um, that's Indiana Jones. It's actually not a priest. But anyway, I've been waiting all day to show you that picture. <laughs> it 
Anyways, so that's another rendition of the Ark of the Covenant if you've seen that movie. Okay, so here's the thing, you guys, the mercy seat. What in the world is a mercy seat? I, for so long, people would say mercy seat, and I'm like, what the heck is a mercy seat? The word mercy um, in, the, in the Hebrew there carries the idea of propitiation or atonement. The word seat literally means lid. You could literally call this the atonement lid. This, the, the idea of atonement and propitiation, by the way, is the removal of sin and the wrath of God by the offering of an acceptable sacrifice. Our sins are atoned for. Jesus has become our propitiation. If you've read your New Testament, hopefully that word rings a bell. And the reason I, I use that word, guys, is because the idea of propitiation carries the idea of satisfying wrath with an acceptable sacrifice. Jesus Christ, we're told in the New Testament, is our propitiation, became our propitiation. A lot of people don't like to think of God in terms of having wrath. But the Bible is very clear that the wrath of God is revealed against all sin. Sin creates a righteous wrath in God. We dumb down sin. We excuse it. But from God's point of view, a breaking of his commandments and a breaking of his law is high treason that demands death as its, as its satisfaction. Does that make sense? I, I use examples like this all the time. I don't know what is going on in our world. I, I've been... Occasionally, I'll, I'll, I'll hit, you know, the headlines on Fox News or one of those places just to kind of see if the world still exists. You know, I'll just kind of, I don't spend a lot of time in the news, but sometimes I'll just go through the headlines. And lately, I've been reading these headlines about, like, father kills three-month-old baby, punches seven-year-old child and kills. I don't know how you react when you read those things, but I'll tell you how I react. I saw this, I didn't read the whole story, but maybe you saw this. There was a guy who was convicted of killing his three-month-old boy or daughter or whatever it was, the uncle, when they convicted that guy in court, the uncle came over while they're walking over and just, just cold cocks him right there in the middle of court. He gets arrested, gets some jail time. But I'm honestly thinking, I don't really blame him. And I probably would have been tempted to do the exact same thing. Now, it was wrong. That reaction was wrong. But the point is, is that when I read about, hear about sin like that, doesn't that make your blood boil? Like, no, that's so wrong. And that's how God feels about gossip. And that's how God feels about lying. And that's how God feels about lust. And that's how God, there's a wrath connected to our sin. And the Bible says that until we come to Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is abiding on us. But there's Jesus who became the, satisfactory, substitutionary sacrifice who in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection fully and completely satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf to restore fellowship to us. Amen? And I've kind of shown my hand a little bit before I wanted to, but that's the whole point of this mercy seat, you guys. What's in the, what's in the Ark of the Covenant? 
not a trick question. What's in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments, the law. And on top of the law was an atonement lid, a propitiation lid. You see, later on in the law, Leviticus chapter 16, um, well, let me back up. That lid would be there, and what does it say in the latter part of that, that paragraph in verse 22? God says, above this lid, the mercy seat, I will what? Meet with you. As we go on, this is something, the glory of God was hovering right above those angels. Something of his Shekinah glory was actually hovering above. His presence was in that holy of holies, hovering above the angels. And he says, it's from the mercy seat that I will meet with you. Now, what he meant by that is, as the, the prescription for the law goes on, there would be one day a year where the high, high priest would be able to come in very reverently, peel back the curtain, step into the presence of God, armed with blood from a sacrifice for his own sins that he would sprinkle on top of those angels on the mercy seat, and then the blood of a goat that was slaughtered for the sins of the nation, sprinkling it on top of the mercy seat, and that's where forgiveness was granted to the people and forgiveness was granted to him. But the point is, is that that was the place where God met with his people, in this case, through his priest, and then on to the rest of the people. But guys, this is so, 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 so important. You see, it's above the mercy seat where we meet with God. It's, on, it's in, the, it's in the, the, the realm of atonement and mercy and forgiveness and the shedding of blood. That's where we meet with God. Did you know in the New Testament, the word mercy seat, Hebrews 8, 5, or 9, 5, excuse me, when it translates mercy seat in the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Hebrew into Greek, it's what they used in Jesus' day, it's this word, hilasterion, and that's not to impress you. The point is, is that later in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, when we read about Jesus being our propitiation, it's the exact same word. So the word mercy seat literally means propitiation. Jesus, let me just cut to the chase. This is the point. Jesus is our mercy seat. Amen? Jesus is where we meet, where we have communion where we come to the Father. And the only way that we can come is because His blood was shed once and for all, and He has completely satisfied the wrath of God because of our sin, and He has completely removed our sin from us. And as Steve prayed earlier, if you remember, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? In the temple, which was just a large version of the tabernacle, the veil literally tore from top to bottom, not from bottom to top as if man was trying to get to God, but from top to bottom, God coming down to man, rips the veil, and in essence says, anybody and everybody who comes to me through the blood of my son Jesus is welcome in to have pure and unadulterated fellowship with me. Amen? So guys, the mercy seat is how we meet with God. Now that is wonderfully true theologically, but let me just end with the idea of this being practical. We always approach God. We always meet with God. We always worship God on the basis of atonement and finished work and, and what Jesus has done and, his 
fulfilling of the law. We never come in, if you would excuse the the picture here, we never come in and peel off the, the mercy seat, the atonement lid, and expose the law. That happened, by the way, in the nation of Israel. Do you guys remember that? When the Philistines had the Ark of the Covenant and they sent it back there in 1 Samuel chapter, I forget what chapter it is, but, and they send the Ark back to the people of Bet Shemesh and the people of Bet Shemesh were like, no way, the Ark of the Covenant back. Yeah, they're stoked. Yeah, the Ark. Yeah, they're having a party and they're sacrificing all of them. And some Yahoo has the idea of like, let's open the lid, see if the law is still in there. They open the lid and he just kills well, there's a debated number of how many he killed, but let's just say there was a slaughter. He just killed them all for peeking in. That's a good illustration. Why? Because you don't come to God on the basis of the law. You approach God on the basis of mercy, and if you remove mercy, we're dead. We're dead. Amen? Guys, what that means for me tomorrow morning or Sunday morning when I come to church I come not based on how well I've kept the rules. I don't get to come to God how well I kept my, the law or the own, my rules I've set up for myself or if I've dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's and I've been a good Christian. I never approach God based on my works and my ability to keep the law. I always come and meet with him based on how Jesus has perfectly kept the law and how Jesus died for my sins and raised from the dead and removed that wrath of God from me so that I can have fellowship with him. Amen? Does that make sense? I feel like I butchered it a little bit, but I think we get the point. Let's stand together and let's pray out. Guys, one last thing, and that is, um, oops, I shouldn't have done that. You see that? Okay, you guys want to see that real quick? So sick. Okay, now I'm in trouble. I can't find my mouse. There we go. Guys, I want to end on this. Listen, I skipped it earlier, and, and halfway through, I remembered, and maybe it was so we could end on it. How crazy is this, that God would come down off Mount Sinai and want to dwell in that camp, but you want to hear something crazier still? The Bible says in John 1.14 that the word, the, the eternal logos of God, God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there literally means tabernacled among us. And then to take it a step further in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 where Paul says, don't you know that we've been bought with the blood of Christ, that we're not our own, and that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit? When you repent and come to Christ and your sins are forgiven, we don't go to some building to have fellowship with God. He comes into the very temple of our souls. And the word temple there, look it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is referring to the holy of holies. In a sense, we become the holy of holies because, it almost sounds blasphemous to say, doesn't it? Because the Holy Spirit of God takes up residency in us and we have unbroken fellowship with him. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. These are deep things, Lord. These are deep waters, and I, I, I feel inadequate sometimes to even dive into them. But, Lord, I, I want us to end tonight marveling at you, Jesus. Not with five things that we got to go do now as application, but, Lord, just to sit back and be in awe of who you are, that who are we that you would come and make your abode in us. 
And how we praise you, God, that we don't come to you and approach you with an open lid, so to speak, with the law exposed. Lord, thank you that you fulfilled that. And then you shed your blood to cover our inability to fulfill that. And then we get to just come and meet with you on the basis of mercy and grace and your finished work, Lord. Father, free us from turning our relationship with you into a works relationship. And Lord, help us to come and just enjoy the work you've already accomplished on our behalf and just be open and free and commune with you, Lord. Thank you, God, for setting us free in that way. Thank you for tearing the veil. Thank you for letting us in. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I will give you one application. The veil's torn. Go spend time with God. Anytime, not one time, not one day a year, any day, all year, anytime we choose, we can just go be in his presence because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Amen.